It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show. We broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and are syndicated on the Community Radio Network. You may download our podcasts from the internet at either 3cr.org.au or bze.org.au or using any common podcasting app. My name is Nils, and our co-host today is Michael. How are you, Michael? Great, thanks, Nils. And would you like to introduce today's guest? For those of you who listened last week or have just played the previous podcast, there'll be a bit of deja vu. Today's guest is again Glenn Morris. Just to repeat the information, Mr Morris is Vice President of the Australian Solar Council and also runs the renewable energy company SolarQuip. Glenn's also a presenter and trainer within the solar photovoltaics field and offers professional development for solar workers. Glenn and his software company Solaris, an outshoot of SolarQuip, developed the first online solar design software customised for Australian conditions. Furthermore, as principal of SolarQuip, Glenn services customers with high-quality, clean energy solution. Topics of today's is closely related to last week's where we covered the Solar 2015 conference the associated conference is the Energy Storage Conference, running alongside it, also on May 13-14 to 14 in the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, presented by the Energy Storage Council. So again, we've got Glenn Morris on the line by phone. How are you, Glenn? Very good, thanks, Michael. Once more, Glenn, if you could give us a uh, potted history for those that missed last week's talk, and, and I believe you've got a bit of extra information about what led you to where you are in your climate journey. Sure. I, I can never tell the same story twice, so it'll be slightly different if you heard last week. <laughs> I've, uh, you know, I've lived off-grid most of my adult life. It's kind of why I'm in the, in the industry I am. Uh, it started way back in 1991 when living in Sydney, actually in King's Cross, I bought a property out in the bush, up in the Blue Mountains, four kilometres from the nearest grid, and it was a little sort of getaway house that uh, men at work owned where they used to practice, and it was my little getaway from the city. But what I hadn't really realised, surprising, having driven four kilometres through the bush to get to it, that it didn't have electricity. It had a diesel generator. I'm sure the real estate agent actually mentioned that, but I was a bit dewy-eyed about the house at the time and didn't really notice. So it wasn't until the fact that I started realising I was running this very expensive, noisy and polluting diesel engine just for providing simple services like a light or to grind my coffee in the morning and costing me, I think it was about $270 a week in diesel. Uh, ferocious cost, and that was 1991. That led me to revert back to my previous incarnation as an electronics technician. I used to work for Post and Telegraph in New Zealand and worked on communication systems, so I knew enough about electronics to get myself into trouble and to build my first very small standalone power system. That was a revelation that you could actually generate your own energy. But back then, it was amazing how expensive solar was. I think I bought my panels at around about $15 a watt. So a little panel, I think it was like 75 watts, was like $800. 
you can buy a whole system almost for that now. So the cost of solar was very high and people tended to be very DIY. The industry has matured a lot since then. And along with it, I've moved, which is I've moved into running an installation company doing both off-grid and on-grid systems, a consultancy business providing training and design consultancy and also a software business, Solaris, as well. So it's taken me a long way from just humble beginnings of necessity. Glenn, you mentioned there that you've been involved in the design and installation of off-grid systems. What size energy storage systems have you been involved with? Only domestic systems. So I think the probably the largest system I would have done would have been around 25 kilowatt hours per day consumption, which is slightly more than the average home in Australia. But for an off-grid system, that's a lot of energy. And you know, uh, we're talking a very expensive system. I think it was about a $150,000 system. So really on the, the small end of the the scale of standalone, the, the, the domestic end, which is really the mainstay and has been the mainstay of the Australian off-grid industry. But we're now starting to see large installations, you know, including things like you know, whole islands going off-grid because they haven't got a grid, but you know, going into battery, solar and wind as their only sources of energy. So very large standalone systems being built these days. Yeah, I understand Kangaroo Island wants to uh, not renew the... Um cable between it and the mainland and they want to get some off-grid as a large sail island as you were describing yes it's uh, interesting that now um, renewable energy is competing directly with the grid when it comes to network upgrade so we've seen locations like magnetic island looking at the cost of upsizing their undersea cable and this was probably about four or five years ago many, many, many millions of dollars to upgrade that cable to support the increased demand of air conditioners, particularly on Magnetic Island. There's only about 2,000 people live there, but they draw a lot of energy in summer. And so they actually funded, through Solar Cities program, the installation of a lot of solar energy. So the utility, Ergon, installed on people's homes, but you know, at no cost to those homes, lots of solar, to save them investing in an undersea cable. So it was cost competitive back then. We're seeing that replicated now with energy storage as well. So Ergon, once again, actually, in Queensland and far north Queensland have uh, rolled out 100 energy storage systems onto their network as a more cost-effective solution than upgrading their infrastructure. And what reasons, other than undersea cables, do your customers cite for choosing energy storage systems? (laughs) None of my customers are undersea cables, but that's a good one. Might be yeah, soon. Uh, it, it's a it's a it's a really fascinating mix. I never have the same conversation twice. Really, it's at the moment there's a, a lot of diversity. So there's I put them into sort of a, a bunch of kind of categories. Uh, you could say the deep green category with those who are really concerned about emissions reduction, want clean renewable energy, realise that to be reliant on the grid, which is predominantly a very dirty source of energy, particularly here in Victoria, is not a good thing. And that uh, without feed-in tariffs, there's not much financial incentive either to put large solar systems in that export most of the energy during the day and little of it uh, is used by yourself and therefore little value is given back to the customer. So they're looking at you know, energy storage as part of that solution. Then you've got customers who are looking at purely from a cost-benefit exercise. Now, that's a very small set at the moment because energy storage is only just becoming cost-competitive uh, and you're looking at quite long payback periods, maybe 10 or more years. 
So if you've got a, a fairly long payback window that you're happy to live within, it is already cost competitive with the grid. And then you've got my sort of more extreme customers who actually want to disconnect from the grid. Now, there's a difference between having the grid and storing your own energy and not having the grid at all when you once had it, because the grid really is a very reliable source of energy, even if it's dirty. And to use it as the energy of last resort is probably quite sensible. So we're seeing people who are actually disconnecting from it. And they're more like you're philosophically opposed to having anything to do with the electricity industry. So they're happy to spend a lot of money and some inconvenience not to be connected to the grid. Now, I'd like to put a caveat around that. I'm not encouraging people to do that because for many people, particularly in suburbia, it's not practical. You have to ask yourself, and I, I have this happen every winter, what do I do when I run out of energy? Uh, you know, it's been raining for a week and my batteries are low or gone, you know, really low. I've got to intervene. I can't just let them go flat, the lights go out and potentially damage them. So I've got to call upon another source of energy. And that's, for my case, going to be a diesel generator as a backup. Now, that's okay in the country where you haven't got neighbours a metre away, but you're not going to be doing that in suburbia as running diesel generators. It'll, it'll sound like Lebanon after the Civil War. One of my students said, well, you could make it sound like a two-stroke mower and no one will notice. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe. But, uh, yeah, I'm just saying that the, the grid actually is, is uh, a very useful source of energy, but maybe it's the energy of last resort and it will be priced such. So you'll be paying for just a connection, not for the energy that you draw. Yes, and, and to provide that capacity to go totally off-grid might mean five times as much capacity as, as just about going grid, disconnect, uh, grid interactive, mightn't it? With, Indeed, a lot more capacity required. Yeah. With your second point, uh, very interesting, the cost-benefit motivation, I've been involved in a few so- solar sales over the last year where people who are actually climate change deniers are putting solar on just because they said, where else can I get a guaranteed 15% return on my money? And on my loose calculations, the grid interactive backup now is probably half that return, but it's still much better than you can get in the bank. If it's giving you, say, 7 8% return, that's better than the 3% you can get with the cash in the bank. Yes, yes. Glenn, how much storage capacity is there already in the national electricity market, excluding hydro? Okay. Well, that's a really fascinating question, and the answer is nobody knows. <laughs> I'm on a, a committee which actually you know, is developing guidelines, best practice guidelines for energy storage at the moment, and we've got representatives from the Australian Energy Market Organisation, AEMO, and they're on that committee because they want to know where it's all going. Because, you know, when you've got a networked grid that sells energy to customers and it's all metered, it's fully monitored. So the, the amount of energy flow to every customer premises is measured and, and therefore can be modelled. But when you start getting customers who produce their own energy, store it and use it, you've got no idea where it's going. And so they're starting to worry about how can they model the national electricity market when they don't know where all the energy's going. And so the answer still is, um, we don't know. We just know from sales of batteries and systems that it's still very small. But anyone looking at the price decline in in, uh, batteries over the last five years will know that the inevitable is it will be cheaper, particularly building a new house, to go straight to battery storage. You mentioned passing before a benefit of energy storage to system owners in that they can effectively get more for that energy by self-consuming it rather than selling it back to the grid and then buying it back later with a huge differential. What other benefits, if any, are there for system owners and what benefits are there for the wider grid in energy storage? 
Well, if you're living in Sydney at the moment, you'd probably wish you did have an energy storage system that worked when the grid was down. No doubt installers up there are being hammered by customers wanting them. So you get backup capability. Now, that's not true of all energy storage systems, I should note. There are ones which are purely for monetary benefit. They, they store and release energy, but they only work when the grid is there. But probably the majority of them have a capability of what we call backup. And how long that is depends on how much storage you have. It's amazing how far you can go with a little amount of storage too when you manage it well. So, you know, if you do have a storm and you lose the grid, you're probably not going to bake a cake, heat your hot water with electricity and, and warm your house with electricity. You're going to start thinking about how you use that precious energy in your batteries. And by the way, when the sun comes out, they'll recharge again. So you've got a, a rechargeable, renewable source that's independent of the grid. So that's a really big plus. It's surprising who benefits from this too. It's not just people who are in storm-affected areas or during outages due to bushfires, etc., but businesses who lose a lot of money for even very short outages. I know a company who does solar plus battery storage for supermarkets, small you know, um, uh, uh, supermarkets, because the, the cost to them of losing power for five seconds is that they have a supermarket full of customers with shopping trolleys full who will then abandon their trolleys and walk out. And so that five-second interruption just costs them $10,000. Mm. Even if they have a backup generating set, it's not online all the time. So it will come back online and keep all the cool rooms cool, but they've lost all their customers. So surprising amount, a small amount of backup storage is uh, very beneficial. And for the wider grid, the, the grid owners, do they see benefits in energy storage? Well, they should, but many don't yet. It's a case of learning by doing for the networks, really. I often use examples from Japan and from New Zealand as examples of how the utilities over in those countries have started to realise that energy storage isn't a threat. It's part of the solution to that. Who it is a real threat to is the incumbent generators, the coal-fired power mm. stations and gas peaking stations, and the existing retail businesses, which have you know, just had a, a lovely little kind of easy-going session selling electricity to customers who have never really had much choice. But when you start to put energy storage in the hands of utilities, they can use it as part of their whole network infrastructure. They can both sync and source energy from those batteries. And so with network control of customers' energy storage, and hopefully give you um, some financial return for that two-way exchange, they can then buffer demand with a very, very robust network of hundreds, if not thousands, of little storage systems across their network, rather than trying to have one big central bank of batteries somewhere in the middle of Melbourne that backs up the whole of the grid. Yeah, I think it's probably their loss of control that they're most making the most hesitant about it, isn't it? You're listening to yes. the Beyond. Sorry, can, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Radio Show. We're speaking today with Glenn Morris, Vice President of the Australian Solar Council and owner of the company Solarquip and Solaris. Glenn, coming now to the Energy Storage Conference, the Energy Storage Conference 2015 at the Exhibition Building in Melbourne, May 13 and 14. When did the Energy Storage Conference begin in Melbourne? So this is actually our first fully-fledged energy storage conference. So we, we sort of had a small adjunct to the last solar conference, uh, which had speakers talking on energy storage, but this has now migrated into a, a parallel stream conference at the same venue at the same time. It's also run by a subset of the Solar Council. We've now set up another part of our organisation called the Energy Storage Council, and uh, we provide conferencing facilities, advice, policy guidance, uh, and also an industry conference for people to exhibit at. So it's a relatively new stream to the Australian Solar Council's bow. 
Okay, so this is the first true year of it. I do remember seeing it last year and didn't realise it wasn't a, a full-fledged thing. What sort of people would you be attending? Do you expect to expand your audience much from the, the solar conference audience? I think energy storage has come of age. People know what it is. They know what the benefit is to them. Anyone who owns a solar system at the moment uh, was probably aware that if they bought it recently uh, and they're connected to the grid, that they're getting very poor returns from that investment because unless they're at home during the day using electricity, the energy is being exported back out to the grid and at the moment it's uh, you know, down to next to nothing. So you virtually just say you're giving it away during the day. So they know that the solution to that is energy storage and current battery technologies are out there, cost-effective and working. So people are very, very interested. That's going to be a big part of who comes to this conference. There'll be people interested in how can energy storage be part of the solution for me and what benefits does it have and what does it look like? Is it safe? Is it affordable? Uh, Will it fit in my kitchen? Yeah, so it might actually be a draw card for the solar conference rather than the other way around. Yes, because they're parallel, you can sort of dart back and forth between the two. Okay. So could you go into more what attendees can expect from the Energy Storage Conference? Well, you'll be having an excellent series of speakers talking about different aspects of uh, energy storage, both technical experts, policy, market operators, uh, product suppliers, people who make parts that work with energy storage and storage itself. You'll be able to see examples of what's on the market. What does it look like? Uh, Many people have this image of batteries, like a car battery, a big stack of them in a box somewhere. Well, we've moved a long way from that. Most of the sort of modern domestic energy storage solutions these days look more like your kitchen fridge with bells and whistles, you know, a little um, screen, touch screen, showing you what's happening in your home and where the energy's flowing. So it's becoming more like an appliance uh, as opposed to a sort of industrial um, product stuck in a back shed somewhere. I think some of the um, suppliers are even releasing uh, neat little packages you can just hang on the wall and that are data-driven and um, make lots of decisions themselves, aren't they? Yes, and I think that's uh, going to be a major part of how energy is managed, is the smarts around the, the energy generation and storage to milk the most out of it. And so we're seeing software controls and smart grids, smart home appliances, etc., all being part of that solution. So coming to probably what's the uh, most interesting question for lots of our audience, we hear lots about different types of battery chemistry, seems to be a new one every week. All of them seem to have exciting applications for the transition to renewables plus storage. What can you tell us about the types of battery chemistry, uh, where you think it's heading at the moment, what the latest and most promising is, the cost curves and so on? All right. Well, you know, I'd be cautious and try to make any claims about being an expert. In we won't, all, we won't hold you to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, my, my personal experience has been with lead acid uh, for, for the last 20 plus years. So I understand lead acid really well. And you could say that's also true of many of the uh, incumbent installers industry. They understand and trust lead acid technologies. It's a 150-year-old technology. It is actually quite efficient too. So it's not like 150 years old and useless. It's, it's, it's quite efficient, but it has its drawbacks. So the main drawback with lead acid is that um, the maximum amount of energy that you can regularly take out of the battery uh, is limited. So you know, typically 50 60% of the battery's capacity can be taken out on a regular basis without causing harm to the battery. So you're kind of buying extra capacity that you never use. Yep. and you're paying for the weight and the space. It's also heavy, so there's the floor loading issues and it's cumbersome to move as a result. Not really suitable for sort of vehicles, for instance, but for stationary applications, uh, not a problem. 
But it has become very, you know, clean. Uh, you know, we have sealed batteries these days. There's no maintenance required on them, and they can be rack-mounted so they take up a small amount of space. But the new kit on the block is lithium. Everyone's asking, you know, is lithium the future? Um, I, I, I don't know, but I imagine it's going to be part of the future. Lithium is a suite of chemistries. It's not just one type of lithium battery. Um, you've got them in your mobile phone and your laptop already, and you probably are very fond of them and trust them. And we're starting to see large-scale versions of those being rolled out in, uh, into, into packages. And one of the big advantages of lithium, as you know, with using your phone or laptop, is you can fully discharge it. You don't have to go, whoa, let's stop at 50% and recharge my laptop. Um, you can actually run it flat. So they've got a much greater usable capacity. They're lighter. Uh, they don't vent hydrogen. They come with sophisticated management software and electronics called battery management systems that really are the bells and whistles when it comes to looking after a cell. So they give you a lot of information about what's happening. They're easy to expand. This is a big sales benefit with lithium systems is that you can install, say, a battery unit. Let's say it's a two-and-a-half kilowatt-hour unit, and you go... Uh, that's nice, but it's not enough. I need more. So you put another two and a half in and another two and a half, etc. And you can expand as much as you like within re reason. Whereas with lead acid, you more or less have to choose the right size system on day one and stick with it till it's finished. You can't easily expand it. So the expandability of lithium is a, a really big plus. Um, there's newer technologies, things like, I mean, it's a huge range, but I'll just pick on one um, aqueous iron. Aqueous iron I think it was Jay Whitaker sort of came up with the technology idea in America. And he started, uh, he does a wonderful TEDx talk, if you want to see it, Jay Whitaker, on why he chose aqueous iron as a cell technology. He wanted something safe, cheap, and abundant. And so he started with a periodic table. And he looked for the elements that were safe, cheap, and abundant. And he nestled down on sodium, basically. So he ended up making using salt and water to make batteries. So if you rupture the battery, you've got salt water on the floor. Uh, it's very easy to dispose of. It's a very abundant material. So that's the new kit on the block right now is um, aqueous iron, sodium iron battery, same thing. And uh, it's got you know, its own different characteristics to lithium. Uh, it has a different management system. It's physically quite a bit heavier, but it's expandable too. So you know these, these kind of uh, advents, as you pointed out, are coming out all the time. You know, we're hearing new technologies uh, uh, popping up and people are giving them, you know, characteristics that are very desirable for different markets. Thank you. Glenn, we experienced a plummeting cost reduction in solar photovoltaics. Do you see a similar cost reduction happening in batteries? Well, it's already happened. Uh, looking at um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance's plot for the last five years, for instance, in lithium, uh, we've seen a similar price decrease to um, the early days of solar, so uh, something like about 7 to 10% per annum of price decrease going on for about the last four or five years. But last year we dropped an accelerated rate of 20% drop in average price to lithium, and this year the prediction is 25% drop in price. So it's accelerating. With those kind of numbers, lithium will overtake uh, lead acid as the most cost-effective solution probably this year, if not next year. So that's a, a really big plus, and, it, and it's being driven by the electric car industry. The fact that volume brings down cost, and electric vehicles uh, like bikes and cars are becoming an enormous part of the storage market. Mm. So what else is changing in the electric storage technology? Well, the control systems around them, it's, these days it's not uh, inverter plus batteries, it's inverter plus batteries plus energy management. It's the EMS, or the Energy Management System, that can make it work even better. 
something that can control loads. Really, batteries are, in a way, the last resort where you want to send the energy. What you want to do is, A, not need it, mm-hmm. so have efficient appliances that need less, so sometimes jokingly called megawatts, the watts you never <laughs> needed. So efficient appliances are where you want to start with, always, and then if you generate energy from, say, a renewable source like solar, you want to use it directly when it's being generated. So if you've got appliances that can be synchronised with the amount of production of a renewable energy system. Now, you know, in simple terms, on a sunny day, your dishwasher comes on at 10, your clothes washer comes on at 12, your hot water electric reheat comes on at 2, or it's controlled directly by power, not mm-hmm. just by time. And so what we're seeing is all that renewable energy being soaked up by appliances that had to do a job anyway during the day. And once you've done all those jobs and the sun, you just can't stop it, keeps on shining, you then start to store that energy in batteries so that in the evening you can use the residue of that solar day as um, taken back out of the batteries. And your final resort is sell it back to the grid at 10% of the price. Or 1% or whatever you happen to be, yeah. Yeah. So you've partly covered uh, this next question previously, but what advice would you give customers in choosing between grid and off-grid storage? Okay, so the big difference between on-grid storage and off-grid storage is off-grid is essential energy. If you think about a sort of hierarchy of uh, human needs, I often draw a little pyramid and they say we'll put air at the top because we need to breathe, we'll put water under that, underneath that because we need to drink and then comes food, and about fourth down comes energy. Energy is very high in the sort of fundamental needs. And if you take away energy and you're off-grid, by the way, your water pump stops working so you've got no water, your fridge has gone off so your food's ruined, but at least you can breathe. So it becomes absolutely essential energy. And if you're buying a battery system for off-grid, it's got to be very reliable. It's not just the battery, but the equipment around it. Whereas with your on-grid, the worst thing that happens is it fails, you've got to start paying more for grid power. You're not going to lose your fridge food and lose your water pressure. So for, for on-grid storage, um, you know, you can be a little less tolerant about quality. Um, not that I'm saying quality is something to, 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 to avoid. I mean, it can be more cost-effective over time, safer and more reliable, but it's not as a cr- critical as it is for off-grid. Thank you, Glenn. The Energy Storage Conference, once again, runs alongside the Solar 2015 Exhibition and Conference on May 13th and 14th at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre and is presented by the Energy Storage Council. Glenn, listeners can find out more about the Energy Storage Conference and the Energy Storage Council from? You can go to our website, so going to Energy Storage Council, or just Google, that's probably the easiest way to find it. Okay. Uh, you can you can uh, go to the Australian Solar Council's website. There's links through to the Energy Storage um, Council. That's solar.org.au. Uh, and you can email me, even, uh, at glenn at solar.org.au. Okay, and they can find out more about your company, Equip and Solaris. Okay, so my company, Equip, uh, is a renewable energy business. Uh, our website is solarquip, S-O-L-A-R-Q-U-I-P, .com.au and uh, Solaris is a uh, software company to developing renewable energy software and that's solarisaustralia.net Thanks. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero radio show brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do please visit our website bze.org.au Today we were joined by Glenn Morris from the Australian Solar Council. Thanks again Glenn for joining us today. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.